Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When we first started to think about doing a podcast called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, question mark, one of the things we agreed that we would do is not just talk to political pundits and law school professors and people like that, but explore how the culture responds to something as engulfing as an impeachment process. And then we had a chance to talk to Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers is, of course, a legendary writer and creator and editor and lots of other things and kind of an activist and also a guy who, as a journalist, and you'll hear a little bit about this, traveled around during the 2016 campaign going to a lot of Donald Trump rallies, trying to understand and empathize with the people who were excited by the prospect of a President Donald Trump. So all of that made him perfect for this. And on our regular episode. We cut this interview way, way down to fit in with all the other stuff that we do. I encourage you to go and check out those uh, full episodes as we do them. But we also wanted to make this available, this longer version of our conversation with author Dave Eggers available in this form. So here we go. I'm talking to Dave Eggers right now, the author of 13 books, the founder of McSweeney's, among many other things he's founded. His new book is The Captain and the Glory and Entertainment. We're going to talk about that. But before we do that, I think we do have to share a little story. So many, many years ago, I wrote a humor piece in which I essentially claimed that I was Michiko Kakutani, the Pulitzer Prize winning but somewhat lynx-like and reclusive uh, book critic of the New York Times. And I sent it to The New Yorker. And in an unbelievably candid reply, they got back to me and they said, this is really funny, but we're not going to run it because we're basically afraid of Michiko Kakutani. We're all (laughs) authors. We're just not going to do this. And so I thought, well, what can I do then? And so I sent it to McSweeney's, which was kind of a new-ish thing at the time. Yeah. And you called me up at home and you said that you felt that you had to run this piece. And I'd like to point out, you've had a flourishing literary career, so all of the New Yorker's fears were unfounded. And my favorite moment actually was at the end, after we'd had a very nice conversation in which you had applied some very acute and thoughtful editing to it. You said, so... I guess I really don't have to get your social security number. <laughs> and I said, Dave, is that your way of saying you're not going to pay me for this? And you said, yeah. yes. It was the nicest way, or at least the most oblique way, anybody has ever not paid me. Well, we, we just collected that piece in our a humor collection called Keep Scrolling Till You Feel Something. And it was, I think it was back in like 98 or 9 yeah, or a, something that you wrote. It was one of the older pieces. And, um, I think you must have gotten like a check for that one, maybe I th- seventy-five dollars. I think yeah, I think they are sending me some whopping check for that. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's all it's all going to work out great. Yeah. All right. So we, now we have to talk about the the business at hand, so to speak. So the captain and the glory is, I would call it an allegory more than I would call it a satire. Yeah. But maybe you could talk about what it is that you feel that you've written. Yeah, I've had trouble with the category. I don't know. I think it's somewhere between the two. But instead of taking place in the actual world that we know. It's a cruise ship called the Glory, where it sort of is the setting, and all the people on it sort of are stand-ins for the entire nation of the United States. And uh, 
their beloved captain is retiring and they have to elect a new one. And instead of uh, choosing one of the many qualified first mates and maritime experts, they elect the guy that sells souvenirs by the putt-putt golf course and who hangs around the women's locker room. And right. so from there, it sort of <laughs> is a thinly veiled allegory for what we've been through these last three years. And for me, it was just, you know, I've been approaching the era as a journalist and going to Trump rallies and, and covering the effect of Trump's policies on immigration and asylum seeking. And this was a way to kind of step back a bit and um, match the absurdity of the time in fictional form. You know, before I started reading the book, this is just within the last day or so, though, I had been searching for something else that I had written a long time ago. And I came across a paragraph in which I had written in October of 2016. I said, if you imagine the presidency as a car, you know, Bill Clinton, he borrowed the car and he kind of brought it back full of fast food wrappers and condom ra condom <laughs> wrappers. And he kind of, you know, and, and he got impeached in it and stuff. And so there's, he sort of dropped the trade value of the car a little bit. And then George W. Bush got it. And he, he kind of dragged the car along guardrails and sparks are flying off of it as he's, you know, using the presidency to legitimize torture and hold people without charges and stuff like that. And then Obama took the car and, you know, he actually sort of started keeping up with the prescribed maintenance, you know, <laughs> and rotating the tires and stuff. And, you know, at least in a way, he was really kind of trying to make you know, do what he's supposed to do with the car. Yeah. You know, and then I wrote, this is October 2016, I said, if you want to find out what the car is worth just as parts or a tax write-off, give, <laughs> give it to Donald Trump, you know? And like so many things that you write about Trump, you know, within one or two years, they become, they seem less funny and more like, oh, well, yeah, you kind of nailed that. Yeah. And, and I, I find that, a, I don't enjoy being prescient. I don't know about you. So one of the questions I have about this book is, when did you actually put it to bed? When did you know you were done? Well, I started it a couple years ago, maybe six months after the election, and I was toggling between this and covering real-life issues as a journalist, and I put it away, and I you know, continued to concentrate on the journalism, and then I came back to it maybe eight months ago, and I still liked it, and I still thought it had a place, and I thought it had not you know, there still hasn't really been fiction written about the era that, that covers it in any form like this. So I thought it had a place that maybe was saying things that hadn't been said or doing so in a way that hadn't been done. And, and it made me laugh still. And that's really rare. I just rarely laugh at anything I write myself, even if I'm trying to make it <laughs> funny. And so I still thought it was kind of entertaining. And so I, I finished it. And then it, I think we went to press in, in August for, yeah. you know, the book that just came out. Uh, Knopf was really nice about speeding up the production schedule. You know, but you nailed it with the manual. Like in, you know, Obama read the manual, mm -hmm. you know, for the, for the car. And in this case, there's a bunch of manuals on this ship yes. called the Glory that immediately the captain, who was just named the captain, he starts throwing these over the railing and hoping that they will sink in the sea because... They intimidate him, these manuals and guidebooks and navigational texts and anything that would indicate how to run the ship is sort of competing, I guess, with him. They, it implies that there have been captains before him and there will be them afterward and that itself is offensive. 
to him because he doesn't see history as existing before or after him. I mean, I, I was trying to imagine what it was like to be writing this book because, in fact, you do nail a lot of things that have happened and things that maybe even continue to happen in even more penetrating ways by the time you get the book done. And yeah, he gets also rid of anybody who actually knew anything about how to run the ship. Too, yeah, is, he replaces them with his cronies, the right. upskirt coterie, he, they're called. Yeah, And I just, I guess I sort of wonder, I mean, I found it funny, but I also, I, maybe I'm in a mood right now. I also just found it very disturbing. You know, yeah. I mean, it's it's harder and harder. I just, these dark scenarios begin to play out in my mind. Uh, stuff that I thought, thought was funny even in 2017, I'm, I'm having a harder time with it. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, you know, I think I really have found, you know, SNL and so many of the other late night comedians and um, Samantha Bee and, you know, so many uh, of these commentators, it, they're so necessary and they've been doing such a good job, I think, at, you know, distilling and uh, and maybe releasing a little bit of that pressure at the end of a day. Because I do think every day is such an offense, such a degradation, and it's so painful at the bone deep soul level of just, you know, for anybody that cares about the dignity of the Republic, it really hurts you know, to have it so degraded. But, you know, I think that I keep thinking of the word catharsis because for me, the writing of this was a lot more enjoyable than the journalism that I've had to write. And it felt like a release. It felt like a, all of this pressure that's been building up and angst and dread was released a bit. But at the same time, yeah, the book is, it's a mixture of comedy and slapstick and horror. And I always, the, the satires and the allegories that I like best do have that duality. They're just inches away from the worst kind of horror, you know, whether it's Joseph Heller or Orwell or Swift, you know, whether they're implying cannibalism or the uh, stratification of society or or in Catch-22, Snowden dying in the back of the bomber. There's a horror that's so incredibly close to some of the broadest slapstick comedy. And I always like that kind of dichotomy. And I like the proximity of those two feelings. Yeah. I mean, my guess is that 15 or 20 years out, this book is going to be shelved more with Kafka and Camus and Gogol, who I worship, partly because of the, you've managed to get through an abstraction of an existing story at something that's maybe even more generally true. I mean, that's maybe a goal you had. I mean, just to write a satire or an allegory of Trump would be a thing in and of itself. But it seems to me you're also just really kind of exploring even larger and possibly more generalizable questions of, of what leadership is. Yeah, I, that's exactly my hope. I think that we really, with George W. and then Trump, it's been, you know, when we presumably elected George W. because he was the guy that people wanted to have a beer with, even though everybody questioned his intellect and competence, that just showed like a fundamental misunderstanding about what it means to elect a president. You know, like the fact that that was considered a rational way of thinking or a rational way of arriving at the candidate is uh, just toweringly terrifying, you know, and thinking that Trump was a qualified and reasonable choice is also just points to our fundamental lack of seriousness toward democracy and toward uh, what it means to elect somebody. I mean, people would not hire Trump to head up their local PTA <laughs> or they wouldn't hire him to do their uh, plumbing and they wouldn't hire him to do their taxes. Like for all of these positions, 
Or even, you know, I was watching the ferries go in and out today. You would never hire him to ferry a boat across, you know, a narrow bay even because all of these positions you would find somebody super steady, reliable with like a very clean track record. And, you know, so to think that there was no position below the one that Trump is holding (laughs) that he would be elected to and, and chosen to. But for some reason, the office of the presidency is considered... All other qualifications, nothing, all of the other reasonable ways we choose people and put people in positions of grave responsibility are all thrown out right. when it comes to the presidency. And it's so odd. But at the same time, you know, you look back at McCain and Palin. When Palin was chosen as the VP and Dan Quayle before, that was both in both cases a handicap because people thought that person cannot lead the country. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to have the gravitas. But for some reason, Trump is this weird once-in-a-lifetime anomaly to whom no rules apply. But I do think it points to us, like, I would hope that from kindergarten on, like, we could revamp our idea of civics and the seriousness of a democracy and what it means to elect people and how serious-minded and steady these people should be. And we should not be basing our decisions on charisma or fame or the person that says the craziest stuff from the microphone. But really, you should be choosing an elected leader the same way you choose an accountant. Right. And if you use that as your corollary, you can't go wrong. I mean, I love your point that we wouldn't want him as a high school principal or in charge of the ferry boat from Sausalito. But we do. We are comfortable with you in charge of a nuclear arsenal. Uh, <laughs> that seems to be okay to us. And one of the things that I've been wondering about lately as we watch this process unfold, and it really was kind of starting to bother me today, and because you've gamed him out, I'd love to get your sense of this. I find myself thinking, okay, what if you know they ultimately decided they wanted to compel the release of these documents and, and witnesses that he so far has stifled? They go all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, yes, you have to produce them. Uh, he says, you know what? I'm still not going to do it. I don't care because that's very much, you know, he is a very l'état, c'est moi kind of guy. So he, he does that. And then maybe the Republican senators walk down to the White House and have one of those famous late night chats with him where they say, you know, we can't really support you in the trial if you're not even going to comply with Congress. And he says, I don't care about that either. And then he gets removed by trial and they start trying to swear in Mike Pence and he still won't leave. And he mm-hmm. still considers himself president. And in the way, <laughs> in, the way in your book, he's able to rally certain segments of the passenger population. You know, th- there will be some people who are, will be willing to still flock to his standard under those situations. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to impose <laughs> such a dark scenario on yeah. you. But, you know, I do wonder about that. Well, what's weird is that I I think he really is a f- very fearful person, and I think that he is really into face-saving to a certain extent. And so that's why I think this impeachment really hurts him. And he does talk about a stain, and he talks about, you know, there's only – he's very well aware that he's going to be the third, you know, impeached president, and that's going to be on his obituary and gravestone and, and on and on. And so I think he is perpetually unaware of the effects of his behavior. Like, he doesn't understand why people don't like him. He doesn't understand why celebrities have abandoned him. He doesn't understand why 50-odd percent of the population disapproves him. He really – because he does think he's doing a phenomenal job. And so it's really interesting in that way. And I, I try to get at him as a – I created the captain as kind of a more vulnerable, needy 
person who is scared of everything and thus hides under his bed and that's where he sleeps and, and gets involved with a voice in the vent that sort of is a Stephen Miller-esque figure who peddles conspiracy theories and props up his ego and sort of matches him loathing for loathing and fear for fear. But in terms of a person that's really going to fight to the end, I don't think he's that way. I mm -hmm. mean, I remember when there was a Trump executive that said he very well might just leave. Mm -hmm. And she was she had been with him for 20 years and isn't there anymore. But she felt like she really understood his ways and said, you know, he might just he could just walk away one day. <laughs> and then I also like I, somebody I know it was saying that there was a, a small movement out there or some chatter about billionaires getting together and just paying him off to leave because <laughs> what if he gave him $500 million just to walk away? Would he do it? That's your next, there's your next, that's the sequel is yeah, the, the world's biggest buyout. Yeah. You know, they, they actually, they do a buyout and they just buy him out. I, I love that concept. One thing that I want to bring up that's, I think it's in the book is that the obverse, the flip side of that self-loathing, and I also want to see some of that self-loathing clearly in your book and in real life involves his lustful feelings about his own very attractive daughter. But the obverse of all that self-loathing is this kind of hypercompensating confidence. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman says that overconfidence is the most ineradicable human bias. You can get rid of everything <laughs> else. And we still, there's this thing called the Dunning-Kruger effect where people just absolutely tend to think they're better at things that they than they are. You know, 83% of Frenchmen believe they are better than average lovers. So, and, and he's, Trump is like in the diorama for that, I think, right? I mean, for all of yeah. those self-doubt and self-loathing, he also really believes that he's a better general than his generals, that he's yeah. a better spy than his CIA director. And that if he hangs out with firemen, he's a fireman. Mm -hmm. You know, at a certain point I, in this book, I have him being a fireman or he thinks he's a fireman. Mm -hmm. I went to a rally once in Sacramento early on where he hung out with the firemen and you could tell that that was where he was most comfortable and most felt like these are my guys. And the place that he, I think he pictures himself, you know, he wants to be, he was always talking about his generals out of central casting. And he talks about men's looks a lot and the soldier that looks this way. And he, you know, this, this obsession with uniforms and authority. And I think that that's where he pictures himself, even though he, of course, hid away from the Vietnam War and has backed away from every fight that he's ever encountered. And so it is this, I think that that's just, this is why all of us have obsessed for three years, is that he is really one of the more fascinating humans that have existed, you know, because there are so many contradictions, so many bizarre things. He's at once, and I'll, I'll give him credit for being funny, because I always, we have to note that he is actually pretty funny sometimes. And he does have a charm that is sometimes forgotten and that he did charm his, those that support him. And I think he continues to charm them. But at the same time, this incredible neediness, this incredible insecurity, this lack of impulse control, you know, this lusting for his own daughter. I mean, all of these, you just, and that's like the first layer of the onion, you right. know, but then also this tolerance for cruelty that I think is really unique. I think that I don't know if we have had a president that has had no empathy whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as many as, as horrible as George W. was in terms of starting two wars and breaking open Iraq irrevocably, I think he was an empathetic person. But Trump, you know, to have this 
incredible mix of traits, but, you know, topped off with an utter lack of feeling for any other humans. It's a very toxic mm. combination that we cannot do this again. Mm. We, you know, there should be an empathy test at the very least. And that can you mirror neurons? Can mm -hmm. you match somebody's feelings? If somebody, if you see somebody crying, does that evoke a feeling of empathy with you? If not, then you cannot lead this country. That's like a basic <laughs> thing. Can you read? Do you have a pulse? Do you have empathy? Those things at the very least, and have you read the Constitution? Maybe those are the four right. requirements in addition to being 35 years old and born in the U.S. Right. So, yeah, that's, it's also called theory of mind. You know, are you able to recognize other people as yeah. you know, having full-blown identities and sensitivities? I have one more thing I wanted to ask you about because you and I had very similar experiences, uh, I think, in terms of going to Trump rallies and meeting people who were really, really actually kind of nice. And yeah. like, before he would get up on stage, they would be fun to talk to. And for you, sure, you'd be, you could joke around with them. And some of the people I, you know, kind of knew. I went to ones around here where people kind of know me, so they would, you know, tease me about who I was, but in a nice way. And then yeah. he would get up on stage, and I was like, "Oh, I don't know what about you, but I was over in the kind of cordoned off press area." And at a certain point, he would go, "And these people," and he would point to us. These are the worst people in the world. <laughs> and and the people who had been so nice to me 20 minutes ago started booing at me. I'm, I actually at one point looked out over. Over them and went, guys, we, we were just having such a nice yeah. chat. You know, and, and, and I guess one of the questions that I have, because I know you had very similar experiences, but you know, this is all going to be over at some point, one way or yeah. another. He gets impeached and removed, or he gets bought out by billionaires, or he loses an election. And you know, I mean, I find myself wondering, can we get back to the friendly part of those conversations that I think you and I both had with Trump supporters. Yeah, I, you know, I, I always say, like, I, I go to rallies and I get a ticket and I move with the audience. So I've never been in the press pool mm -hmm. and I just sort of roam around. I have conversations with people and everyone I meet has been reasonable, thoughtful, interesting to talk to, sense of humor, conflicted. They have reservations, you know, they have nuanced feelings. And so I learned so much and I have yet to meet like the stereotypical brown shirt Hitler youth kind of maniac, you know, that mm. I think that we assume that the majority of his supporters are. Instead, I meet regular people all the time that we have good conversations. And, you know, usually they're only too happy to explain themselves, you mm. know, and, and especially if you listen. Yeah. You know, I'll give people 30 minutes to just talk and they explain themselves. But you really do find some very odd thinking. Mm -hmm. And my favorite story was uh, – I was at the rally in El Paso, and I met the T-shirt vendors. They it was a young African-American guy and a young white woman with sort of dyed pink hair, and they'd been following Trump around for years, selling T-shirts. And it, they did not look like prototypical Trump supporters, but they were selling the MAGA gear. And, and I said, well, you know, what is it about him, you know, that, that appeals to you? And the woman said, well, he puts things in order. And I said, okay, that, so things under Obama were out of order? Oh, she's, oh, yeah, they were out of order. And he put things in order. <laughs> so there's that tendency toward authoritarianism that has been talked about a lot. And that's what cuts across all sort of demographic lines is that there are a lot of people that want the one strong man to say what's what, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's so much of his appeal. And then I said, but you, do you guys have insurance? You know, how do you get health care? No, we don't have insurance. We go to the emergency room. And I said, well, what if we were going to tax the millionaires and billionaires just a little bit and you could get universal health care and you wouldn't have to, you'd have a doctor and it'd be free and you can you know, go there anytime and make sure you're well. 
He said, well, and the young man said, I don't, I'm not for that because tomorrow I might be the millionaire and I don't want my future millions taxed <laughs> at a 1% higher rate. And then you get into like that sort of worship of wealth mm-hmm. and that is so unique to this country, I think. And everyone thinks that their millionaire status is right around the corner and that they're not ready to share their future millions. And I think that, that those two things really summed up so much of his, I think, the superficial level of his appeal and made you think like, you know, I think we can convince people and I think that we can return to our better selves. And I think under Obama, you saw that we did. And I think that there are so many Republican candidates, too, who are morally upstanding and nimble thinking and intellectually curious. And so I think that this really is a once in a nation's history kind of moment because I don't think he has a precedent. I really don't see anyone else out there that could do the same thing. So it really doesn't, I don't think he has a successor. And I, the beauty of writing a book like this is that it has an ending. Right. You know, I was able to sort of write the ending that I hope and believe will happen. That was my conversation with author Dave Eggers, and you know him as the founder of McSweeney's and the man who wrote a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Uh, His new book is The Captain and the Glory, an entertainment 